Esther chapter four, beginning in verse 13. Just gonna read a, a few verses. Esther chapter four, beginning in verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, and I'll give you the context later. Don't think for a moment that because you're in this palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is alive. It is powerful. It is holy. It has transforming power in it. And so God, as we give ourselves to you today, as we focus our attention around this living, powerful, holy word, I pray that not only is our attention captivated by your word, but Lord, I pray that you would speak and challenge and convict and encourage every heart and every life in this room today. Lord, I pray that your word, not my words, may your word speak to us in a very real and fresh way this morning. God, help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you. And I pray, God, that you would help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to declare your word with boldness, with passion, with clarity, and with simplicity. Help us to not only understand with our minds, but help us to be encouraged and challenged in our hearts today so that when we leave this place today, we leave different than how we came in because we've encountered the living presence of Jesus Christ. And I just ask God that you would encourage and speak to all of us today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are, uh, today I'm actually gonna be bringing this series that I've been in now for the last few weeks called Exiles to a Close. We have been examining various people or various passages in scripture, focusing in on certain characters in scripture uh, who have lived the exiled life. And we've been learning from their example over the last few weeks. We looked at uh, the story of Daniel uh, when he was thrown into the lion's den. We looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrews uh, who refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace, but they were saved or rescued uh, from that particular furnace. We talked about Nehemiah. Uh, who returned from his life in exile in Persia and he went back to Jerusalem and he rebuilt, started the rebuilding process of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And we talked about, uh, Pastor Grady a few weeks ago talked about Peter and this this example that we've been given to live a Christ-exalting life. And when we live the the, the Christ-like life in a world that is not our permanent home, Let me just tell you folks this morning, we will stick out. We will look different and that is an okay thing. And and this is why we will look different because the kingdom values, God's values do not match up at all with worldly values. Our kingdom behavior does not reflect at all the behaviors of the world. And our kingdom perspective 
is much different than a worldly perspective. And so if we give ourselves to the kingdom life, if we give ourselves to living a life that reflects the character of Jesus Christ, the son, then I can tell you right now, we're going to stick out. We're going to look different, but that is okay because the values of the kingdom are completely different than the values of this world. And we have committed ourselves to kingdom values. So here is the question, how can we effectively navigate this life as outsiders and strangers or exiles in order to spiritually thrive now and also be useful in God's kingdom? How can we navigate this life? How should we live this life as exiles, as outsiders, as strangers in order to spiritually thrive now, but also be effective and useful to advance God's kingdom? That's the question we've been wrestling with over the last few weeks as we've looked at Daniel and we've looked at Nehemiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Peter. What does that life look like and how are we to navigate this life when this world is not our permanent home. And the answer that we've come to over the last few weeks, the answer is very simple. And it is all reflected around this word faith. We talked about having a bold faith. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were willing to do what was unpopular. Everybody else was bowing down to the image. But these three Hebrews, they said, you know what? Even though the popular thing is to bow down to this image, we serve one God and one God alone. So we will not bow down to that image. They had a bold faith. We talked about a routine faith. Remember Daniel, there was this law that was issued that said, you cannot pray at all except to the king. And Daniel said, no, 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 I'm going to continue to do what I've always done. I've prayed three times a day. And so Daniel, he goes up into his loft or into his room and he opens up the windows and he faces towards Jerusalem and he did what he had always done. It was part of his routine. He prayed to his father in heaven. He had a routine faith. We talked about an active faith. Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah was, was doing his job in the Persian court. He was a cupbearer to the king. And when he got the report that, that God's people in Jerusalem had become stagnant in their relationship with God, they had stopped the the rebuilding process, uh, Nehemiah said something must be done. And so he took action. He didn't just sit back and wait for somebody else to, to, to take the stand and do something. Nehemiah had an active faith and his active faith resulted in God's people once again, uh, serving God faithfully and reinstituting several Passover celebrations. And today, though, we're going to talk about a different aspect of faith, and that is a purposeful faith. The story of Esther one who lived outside of the land of Judah, so she was living in exile, the story of Esther will shed light on this purposeful faith that we're gonna talk about just for a few moments together this morning. Now, before I jump into the actual text, I wanna just say a few things about the book of Esther itself. Maybe you've read Esther before. I would encourage you to read the entire story. I don't have time uh, to go through every, uh, every story inside the book of Esther. Um, otherwise, we'll be here all afternoon and probably tomorrow. And, and so I, I don't wanna keep you that long and nor do you wanna stay that long. So I, I'm just gonna give you a synopsis, but I wanna say a few things about the book of Esther itself. Um, out of the 39 books in the Old Testament, so there are 39 books in the Old Testament, out of the 39 books, only two of them are actually named after women. One of them is Ruth, 
and the other is Esther. If you know anything about Ruth and Esther, those stories really go in complete opposite directions. Um, Ruth is, is actually a Moabite woman who will marry an Israelite man by the name of Boaz, and Ruth will end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. On the other hand, Esther, she is a Jewish woman, an Israelite woman, and she will end up marrying um, an outsider. She marries the the king of Persia. So you can see, though there are similarities, they kind of go in opposite directions based upon the main character in the story. Just as a side note, you may or may not care, but I'm gonna tell you anyways, because I think it's cool. Um, They are Ruth and Esther. So if you were to open up a Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible is actually organized Organized just a little bit different than, uh, than our English Bibles. And there is the section, the last section of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is called the writings. And, and so what we see in, in the writings is that Ruth and Esther are actually the bookends to that section in the Hebrew Bible called the writings. So Ruth is the first book in the writing section and Esther is the last book. So kind of an interesting fact. Um, maybe next year in trivia, I'll throw that one in there. So keep that, you know, keep that in the back of your mind. Um, That might become important. Uh, Esther appears, again, a few interesting things. Esther appears to be absent altogether from any New Testament writings. Ruth is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, but Esther is never mentioned, nor is she alluded to in the New Testament. And the book of Esther is never quoted or made reference to in the New Testament as well. Now, there were early Christians who saw very little value in the story and in the book of Esther. There were a few kind of scattered quotes. quotes. If you were to read some of the early Christian writings or Jewish writings, there were some scattered quotes from some of the early church fathers making reference to the story of Esther, but very few of them even alluded to the story of Esther. Martin Luther was actually hesitant altogether. Listen to what he says. He says, I am so hostile to the book, 2 Maccabees, and to Esther that I wish they simply did not exist for they Judaize too much and reveal much bad pagan behavior. So that's what Martin Luther had to think about the book of Esther. He didn't see any value in it whatsoever. Uh, He wished that it did not exist altogether. So very interesting to think even Martin Luther, one of the the great greats when it comes to uh, Christianity in general and the Reformation, he did not see any value in the book of Esther. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. I believe that the book of Hester has incredible spiritual value. I, I, I know from scripture that it says in scripture that all scripture is God breathed and it is useful. And I believe Esther has incredible spiritual value, not, not just for a few people, but for all of God's people. And we're gonna kind of bring out some of that value today. Uh, it is one of two, this is very interesting. Esther is one of two Old Testament books that never mentions the name of God. The other book is Song of Solomon. So there are two Old Testament books that never mention the name of God. But if you read the story of Esther, and I would encourage you to do so from beginning to end, if you read the story of Esther, though the name of God is never mentioned, 
I can promise you that you will see that the activity of God is on full display. From beginning to end, though his name is never mentioned, you can see the footprint or the hand of God weaving through the story of Esther. And what what an incredible display of God's sovereignty and God's providence in that story. This story, I believe, has a powerful message for believers today. Let me just give you a quick summary uh, of the Esther story. So if you've not read it before or you're not familiar with it, I'm just going to give you some highlights, but this will help kind of shape our message this morning. So let me give you the context. Again, the Jews, the Jewish people, they have been in captivity or they spent 70 plus years in captivity to the people of Babylon. So from 586 BC to 539 BC, the Jewish people, they were removed from Jerusalem and they were taken back to Babylon or they were scattered to other places and they spent 70 plus years in captivity to the people of Babylon. And then came along this king by the name of Cyrus, who was king of Persia. Persia destroyed the, destroyed the Babylonian empire. And King Cyrus, he, he looked favorably upon God's people. And so he issued a decree or a law that allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland, to go back home, to go to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and to, to reestablish what they, what they used to have when they lived in Jerusalem. But, but some of the people did return, but there were some who remained in Persia. Uh, We know that there was a man by the name of Zerubbabel who would take about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem when King Cyrus issued that law. But then there were some who would remain behind. Those that remained behind, of those that remained behind, Esther and her relative Mordecai were some who actually stayed in Persia. Esther was a Jewish woman, but she became queen of Persia because she married King Xerxes. Now, how did she end up becoming, how did a Jewish woman end up marrying a a Persian king? That does not seem like that would even be possible. Well, what occurred was the previous queen, her name was Vashti, and she refused to put herself on display for the king. So the king's like, I'm getting rid of this woman because if, if I don't, if I don't excommunicate her, then all of a sudden it's going to cause this revolt among our people. So the king, he asked for advice and counsel from some of his close advisors. And they said it would be best to get rid of Queen Vashti to excommunicate her. Otherwise, it would cause an issue in your kingdom. So this left King Xerxes queenless. He, he had no wife. He had no queen to rule with him. So then this began a search for a new queen. And if you read in the story, and I'm just giving you really snippets of the story, they went searching, went looking for this, this new queen, and they put on this great display or this great banquet, and there was this whole process involved to pick or choose the next queen of Persia, and Esther caught the king's eye. And so he requested that Esther become his queen. Now she kept her nationality, and that's important. She kept the fact that she was a Jew a secret, though she was still nominated as queen of Persia. There is this other man that comes along by the name of Haman. Uh, Haman is kind of the antagonist in the story. Uh, So if you read the story of Esther, you will see that, that Haman, he was the king's chief of staff but he would actually convince the king to issue a law against all the Jewish people 
because this guy by the name of Mordecai, who was related to Esther, refused to bow down to Haman. And because he refused to bow down to Haman, it ticked Haman off. And so because he was like the right-hand man of King Xerxes, he convinced the king to issue a decree that would eventually lead to the destruction of the Jewish people. And so as you can see, this is, this is gonna become an issue because the Jewish people are, are now eventually going to be destroyed because this one man would not bow down to Haman. But guess what? There is a Jewish woman who happens to be married to this Persian king, though her nationality has been kept a secret. We read about this in Esther chapter three, verses eight through 10. It says, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written and that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman and the, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Now I would suggest to you this morning, if you're looking for a name for a child, don't choose it from that list, all right? Um, that would be a little bit difficult to probably say um, and maybe a little bit uh, controversial as well. So choose elsewhere. Um, but, but Esther here, and this is what I want you to see, Esther was certainly put to the test as an outsider. And how she responded would be critical for her and for her people. But what we're going to see in this story is that Esther's purposeful faith in this critical moment, it provides us with some very simple truths to embrace if we as believers are going to effectively navigate and live this life in this world that is not our own. And so I wanna take just a few moments. I won't take much time this morning. There are three very important truths or principles that we learn from the story of Esther that I believe will help us as believers, as followers of Christ, will help us to navigate this life in a way that is effective and useful for the kingdom of God as outsiders or as exiles. So what do we learn from the story of Esther? Number one, as exiles, we need godly advisors and mentors in our corners to help us see beyond our blind spots. Now, let me just say this this morning. If you think you don't have any blind spots, I'm here to tell you we all do. Our perspective and our biases usually will get in the way and it makes it difficult for us to see what we really need to see. So we need people in our life that can help us to see things from a different perspective, that can help us see things that we are blinded to. And we see this in the story of Esther. Esther's perspective was limited and it was somewhat tainted. But she had an individual in her life. She had Mordecai who helped her see the bigger picture and understand the gravity of the situation. Let me, let me take you back to the text. If you still have your Bibles open, I did not read all of this, but Esther chapter four, beginning in verse seven, I want you to see again how Mordecai becomes a man, an individual in Esther's corner that helps her to see what she could not see because she was blinded to the reality in front of her. Let me read the story again, Esther 4, Verse seven, Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathok a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. 
And he asked Hothok to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hothok to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So he returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. And then Esther told Hothok to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. And this is what Esther said to Mordecai, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. Let me paint the picture for you. So, so no one can go into the king's court. No one is allowed to go. Not even the queen uh, uh, of the king uh, herself is allowed to go unless she is invited in. And, and so the invitation comes when the gold scepter is placed out in front of or in front of him. That is an invitation that somebody is allowed to come into his presence. And so she's saying, I can't go into the king's presence unless I am invited by the king to go. So that's the issue that we have here at hand. And so then moving on, and the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hothot gave Esther's message to Mordecai. This is what we read in the opening text. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in this palace that you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief will come from the Jews, uh, for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. So Esther has somebody speaking into her life. She has somebody in her corner that is helping her to see the bigger picture because her vision, her perspective is limited and it's tainted because of the position that she's in. Mordecai wanted her to use her position to beg for mercy from the king. Esther knew that if she approached the king uninvited, it could mean death for her. She was in a very tough spot and was blinded to the gravity of the matter. There were things happening outside of the, the court that she was not even aware of. She was blinded to what was taking place. But Mordecai would speak into her life. He counseled her and helped her to see the seriousness of the matter. And he even says to Esther, Esther, do not fool yourself. Your position will not keep you from harm. Yes, it may be a secret now that you're a Jew, but it will come to light at some point and you too will be destroyed with the rest of them. So do not fool yourself, Esther, and think that somehow you will be saved from all of this. And so when Mordecai speaks into her life, her eyes are open to the problem and she realizes that she is in a better position to navigate now this difficult place. So she listened to the wise counsel of a friend, of her relative, which brought her incredible clarity. Folks, the world we live in as outsiders presents many challenges. Sometimes makes, it sometimes makes living Christ-like difficult. It can be hard sometimes to navigate this life based on our personal biases and sometimes even our limited perspective and vision. Uh, there are many debates today surrounding issues that leave Christians struggling to take a firm stand. These are some of the questions that maybe we've wrestled with before. Where's the line between continuing to show compassion and becoming an enabler for someone struggling with an addiction? How can I be a strong witness for my coworkers or my friends at school if I'm the only professing Christian without tainting my walk with Jesus? These are some of the struggles that we have. This is part of the navigating this life as outsiders. How do we navigate this world? How can I be a witness for Christ when I'm the only one professing Christ at school? How can I look different and not be ostracized at the same time? How can I discern God's will? in any situation and not somehow miss it. 
because of my own personal preferences. Maybe you've been there before trying to discern what is my next step? What is God calling me to? What direction is he leading me to? And you wanna get it right, but you also know that you have personal biases. You know you have limited vision and understanding. And so you wrestle with, is this really God's will for my life? Or is this just something that I want to do? Or does what I want to do line up with God's will? That's part of the navigating this world that we live in that we have to wrestle with. How do we express love to those wrestling with specific sins inside our circle of influence while at the same time proclaiming the truth of God's word faithfully? Those are questions we wrestle with as we navigate this life as outsiders. I know that the watering down and even the distortion of absolute truth is not making it easy uh, for Christians to ex, uh, Christians who are exiles to navigate this life. The very fact that, that God's word is being watered down, that it's being distorted, that, that we're not even giving ourselves to the very word of God is making it difficult for us as believers to navigate a very challenging world because this must be, this must be our, our standard of living. This must be where we go to, but if we don't give ourselves to the word, it makes it very difficult for us to know how to respond or to discern God's will or do I do this or not do this? We need a standard of living, and that is the word of God. Culture of biblically illiterate people will certainly increase these struggles because we will not be able to easily discern between that which is of God and that which is from the world. So what do we do? How do we live faithful and godly lives amidst this very difficult situation? We have to seek God, and we need to heed the counsel of godly men and women in our lives. Seeking God, I'm just gonna say it this morning, seeking God is a non-negotiable. I'm not gonna really expound on that one. But heeding the counsel of trusted men and women is often overlooked. Listen to what Proverbs 11 verse 14 says, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Sometimes we have too many blinders or personal biases that are keeping us from seeing clearly. Esther did. She was in a position that was keeping her from really seeing what was happening outside of the Persian court. Folks, we need people in our life to help us see what we cannot see on our own. We need Mordecai's. We need people to speak into our life to help us see things from a different perspective because sometimes we have blinders that are keeping us from seeing what is truly true. We must identify those people who are in our lives, an accountability partner, a family member, a church family or a church family or somebody that you trust and you know that can speak into your life. And that is incredibly important. Um, one of the things that I do, my, this drives my wife crazy, but sometimes when I need kind of advice or counsel or direction, or I need help seeing something from a different direction or different perspective, I always wait until about 10 or 10.30 at night and I just lay it on her. And... and <clears throat> My mind is going, she's ready to go to bed. And once, she, once I get it off my chest, I can sleep great. But then my wife, on the other hand, she's up all night. And so I would not suggest that approach. Um, if it works for you, if it works for your spouse, great. Um, but I would suggest a different approach, maybe do it a little bit earlier. Um, we were just talking about that last night. I just have this tendency to wait until about 10 or 10.30 and I just lay it on her. And... Um, and I'm waiting for a reply. Sometimes it's, it's minimal. So it probably would be best to do earlier. But we need those people in our life. This is why we cannot take the approach 
that some, some will say it's just me and God. It's not just me and God. We need others to speak into our life. We need people in our corner who can help us to see beyond the blind spots so we can be faithful to do what God has called us to do. We will not effectively navigate this world as outsiders without having people in our corner who will help us see beyond our own blind spots. So my question for us this morning, who are those people for you? Who are those people in your corner? Who are those mentors, those counselors, those advisors who help you see from a godly perspective, who help you see beyond the blind spots? We need those people and we need to trust them to speak into our life. Number two, I'm gonna give these last two to you quickly. As exiles, we should prayerfully discern how God can use me now where he has presently positioned me. This is important. Listen, Mordecai helped Esther to see that God through his providential hand had possibly placed her in, a, in her present position for the purpose of bringing relief to her people. Listen to what he says in Esther chapter four, verse 14. Who knows, Esther, if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He's just saying to her, uh, to, to Esther, Esther, maybe God placed you here by his providential hand. Maybe this was not an accident. Maybe it was not a coincidence that you were chosen as a, as a queen of a Persian king. Maybe God put you here for this very purpose. Don't miss the opportunity that God has placed in your life. Don't wait for another opportunity, but capture and understand that maybe God's put you here for this very reason. So a Jew being chosen as the queen in a Persian court was just, wasn't just some accident. It was the work of God's providential hand. Remember in the story of Ruth, Ruth, a Moabite woman, it says in chapter two of Ruth that, it, that she just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. That is not a, a message of, 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 of it being an accident or by happen chance, it is a message that God's providential hand placed Ruth exactly where she needed to be in the field that she needed to be in. So we see God is oftentimes, we may not see it at first, but he is oftentimes positioning us and putting us in places that may seem insignificant, but maybe he's put you there for a very specific purpose. This wasn't clear at the beginning. It usually isn't, but it became clear in the moment. She didn't have to be in Jerusalem serving in a Judean court before she could be useful for God. I want you to hear this point this morning. One's ability to be useful for God's kingdom. It is not contingent upon some location, prestige position, or even a season in life, but instead it's about a willing spirit and an obedient attitude. To be useful for God, it's not about what location I'm in. It's not about what position I have. It's just about having a willing and obedient spirit and heart saying, God, whatever you need me to do, I'm willing to do. Esther, with the encouragement of Mordecai, she was willing and obedient to be used of God now. She didn't wait. The very same God who by his providential hand placed Esther in a position to rescue her people is the same God who has placed you in whatever position you are in today and now. Here's what I want you to, if you, if you miss anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. You can be useful for God right now. You don't have to wait you don't have to wait for the right position. You don't have to wait for what seems like the right time or, or, or the right place or, uh, or the right location. You can be useful for God now. My question is, do you have a willing spirit and an obedient heart? You don't have to wait for another position. Esther had a secular role. She was queen to the, the Persian king. Ask God how you can be useful for his kingdom now, right where he's placed you. I would encourage you to ask some of these questions. God, how can I impact the kingdom at my current job? 
God, how can I impact the kingdom of God in my math class, in my English class, in art class, in, in, in whatever, study hall? God, how can I impact the kingdom of God right now? God, how can I impact the kingdom in my current relationships that I'm in? God, how can I impact the kingdom of God in my present community where God has placed you? It's not about, I'm gonna wait until I'm old enough or I'm gonna wait until I get a new position or a new job or I'm gonna wait until I move to a new location. No, God has placed you where you are right now. You can be useful for him. Ask him how he wants you to be useful for the kingdom. You might feel like your present season is hard, confusing and not that life-changing but maybe God has placed you there for a very specific purpose. Prayerfully discern and ask God, what is that purpose? Why has he placed you where he has placed you? Folks, we will not effectively navigate this world as exiles unless we learn to recognize that we are, that we are or may very well be where God wants to work in and through me to make a difference for his kingdom. Let's not miss those opportunities. Finally, number three, and those of you that are gonna get baptized, if you wanna go ahead, if you need to get prepared, you can do so. We'll be doing that here in just a few moments. But listen in on this very last point, number three. As exiles, we must seek God and his wisdom before we are moved to action. Once Mordecai, look at this, look at me. Once Mordecai helped Esther see the situation from a new perspective and encouraged her that God had divinely placed her in this present role to be used of him. What did Esther do? She then sought the presence and favor of God before taking specific action. Listen to Esther's response. Once she has this new perspective, Mordecai speaks into her life and she realizes maybe God has put me here for a very specific purpose right here. And now listen to her response. She sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews of Susa fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Listen, Esther called for a corporate fast. This would allow everyone to receive clarity and to hear from God before they acted. Nehemiah did the same. Remember Nehemiah, when he was moved by the fact that the walls of Jerusalem were still in ruins, what did Nehemiah do without telling anybody? He went out at night, he inspected the walls and the conditions of the walls, and he really sought the presence of God and the direction from God before he made a plan. Nehemiah didn't come in before even inspecting the walls and say, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start here and here. No one would go onto a construction site and, 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 and not inspect the site before doing anything else. And so we see that he he seeks the favor of God before doing anything else. Hearing from God and gaining clarity on what he wants us to do is vital if we're gonna live faithful lives in a world that is not our own. Esther could have taken several approaches to bring relief to her people, but this time spent in God's presence allowed her to devise a very specific plan of action. She said, before we come up with any plan, before I go into the king's court, let's fast, let's pray, let's get direction from God. And when we hear from him, then we will act. Sometimes we are too quick to act without seeking direction from God. Sometimes though, on the flip side, let me say this, sometimes we're waiting and God spoke to us and we haven't acted. And so we, we need a balance. We need to listen and get direction from God. But at the same time, we need to know when God tells us to go, we need to be faithful to go. And so they call for a corporate fast. They seek God's direction. Church, there is a lot, and I want you to hear this. There is a lot of good that we can do 
to combat the work of the enemy and reach a community and world for Christ. But the reality is one church cannot do it all. So we need, as a church, we need clarity on what God is calling us to do. What specific purpose and reason has God placed us here in Dunkirk, Indiana, right here on Main Street to be useful for the kingdom of God? We need to hear from him so we can get clarity on what he wants us to do. That's why every year we begin the year with 21 days of prayer and fasting, both corporately and individually, because I wanna hear from God individually, but as a church to know, God, what are you calling us to do? On Sunday, October 8th, um, which is kind of our anniversary celebration as a church, I'm gonna share what I believe God is calling this church to focus on specifically moving ahead. Not that we're gonna ignore anything else, but I believe there are specific things that we need to give our focus and attention to. I I want you to recall, also recall, I don't want us to get ahead of God with my plans, nor do I want to drag behind and miss out on what God wants to do in us and through us. The principle is not just true for the church, but for you, your family, your circle of influence. We need to hear from God before we act and move. Worship team, if you wanna come this morning. So here's my question for us. Have we taken the time to see how God wants to live? Or have you taken the time to see how God wants you to live your life as an exile in, but not of the world? Are you doing it how you want to or are you doing it how God wants you to live this life? We will not effectively navigate this world as exiles unless we take time to slow down and hear from God before we act. This should be the desire of every heart in this room. I wanna put this up on the screen to really summarize what God is calling us to this morning, I think it's summarized in this statement. God, help me to be faithful to you. If this is a prayer, I would offer this prayer up. God, help me to be faithful to you and your kingdom purposes while navigating this world that is not my permanent home. God, help me to heed the counsel of trusted people, to see beyond my own blind spots, to see what purpose you have for me now and not just in the future. And God, to hear from you regarding our next course of action. If we're gonna faithfully live as exiles, outsiders, strangers in a world that's not our own. Folks, we need other people, trusted godly men and women to speak into our life to help us see what we cannot see because of our blinders. We need to understand that we don't have to wait for another position, another place, another location, another time, or till I'm the right age to be used to God. God can and wants to use you here and now. So ask him, God, how can I be useful for your kingdom? I don't care if you're one years old or a hundred years old, God can use you here and now. You don't have to wait until the right season. He's ready to use you now. Do you have a willing and obedient heart? And then as a church, as families, as individuals, we need to seek God's direction. We need to hear from him before we act and move. I don't wanna get ahead of God. I don't wanna follow my plans and my vision. I want to follow his plans and his vision for my life, for my family's life, for the life of this church. We need discernment. We need to hear from him. Richard Halverson, former pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, and also the former chaplain of the United States Senate, used the following benediction. And I'm just going to end with this at the end of each service or message for many years in his ministry. 
and it reflects his deep conviction that his church was not only where the congregation met on Sundays, but at each place where they lived and worked through the week. Listen to this benediction and then we're gonna close. This is how he ended every service and every message. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ who indwells you by the power of his spirit wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, his power in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.